0: Good morning, Southwestern. I want to thank Dr. Patterson and Mrs. Patterson for your leadership here and the example that you set for all of us, just your leadership and your faithfulness to equip the saints for the work of ministry. I also want to thank the preaching faculty, especially Dr. Dickard and Dr. Walker, who have invested so much in me personally. Humanly speaking, everything good that I know about preaching, I would say, comes from two sources. That would be the preaching faculty here at Southwestern. And secondly, is the preaching and pastoral team at Prestonwood Baptist Church, particularly Dr. Jack Graham and Dr. Jarrett Stevens. And I just want to say thank you greatly to both groups. And lastly, I also want to thank my family. Many of them are here this morning, especially my wife, Ashley. Uh, She has listened to so, so many bad sermons. And my prayer this morning is that this one would not add to that number. I love superheroes, so I'm immensely excited about the upcoming Avengers movie coming out this weekend. I still don't fully understand why uh, uh, Marvel seems to keep releasing these movies around exam times. (laughs) I also don't really understand why Avengers is not a legitimate excuse to postpone an exam. (laughs) But that's neither here nor there. My favorite superhero series is the Dark Knight Trilogy originally released in 2005. Uh, And there's a particularly powerful scene about halfway through the second movie. Batman has been going up against the Joker and he's been defeated again and again. And he's beginning to lose hope. He's ready to quit. He's ready to hang up the cape. The people of Gotham are dying. They're losing hope. Some of them are even mad at Batman. And it's at this point that he turns to Alfred, his closest friend and his confidant, and Alfred is trying to convince him, to persuade him to keep going, to not give up. But weak and hopeless, Batman turns to Alfred and he says, what would you have me do? What would you have me do? And Alfred gives this brilliant Simple, one-word response. Endure. Endure. But the problem with the response is that Alfred did not tell Batman how to endure. For Batman turns to leave, and he says, I cannot endure this. Well, this morning, I don't want to just tell you to endure, but I wanna show you from God's word how we are to endure. How do you endure when the trials of life come at you? How do you endure when the testings and the temptations come your way? How will you endure when your mentor in ministry has a moral failure? How do you endure when someone in your church criticizes your spouse? What about when they criticize your children? How do you endure when you feel like you've been praying for something for so long, and yet it still feels unanswered? How do you endure when the enemy attacks you? And I believe we find our answer to that very question in the example of Jesus and how he endured in battle. So if you will, please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to begin in verse 1. Now, immediately prior to our text this morning, Jesus has gone down to the Jordan River to be baptized by John the Baptist. And as he's being baptized, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove. The heavens are torn open, and the Father says these words, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. But then all of a sudden, the scene and the setting completely change. And that's where we find ourselves in Matthew chapter four. In verse one, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, I think we need to stop right here for just a moment because for some of us, we need to be reminded that just because we're in a difficult season of life, in a difficult place, that does not mean we are outside of the will of God. Sometimes God will lead us to difficult, trying situations. Last August, Tom Rainer and his team released an article that says it now takes approximately seven years before a church truly accepts someone as their pastor. Seven years. Now, I know not all of us feel called to be pastor here this morning, but the reality and the truth of the fact is that if we are going to be effective in ministry, we need endurance. James 1.3 talks about how that endurance comes from the testing of your faith. So when our faith is tested, we don't run, but rather we endure it. We trust that God is working in us and through us. You see, Jesus being led by the Holy Spirit doesn't run from the testing of his faith, but he trusts the Holy Spirit even into the wilderness. Jesus trusts and he follows the Holy Spirit even into suffering. Jesus trusts and he follows the Holy Spirit even into battle. And the battle begins in verse three. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, at first glance, we might be a little confused by this. We might think to ourselves, what is truly wrong with this proposition? After all, we know that several chapters later, Jesus takes five loaves of bread, and he miraculously multiplies it into enough food to feed 5,000 men and many more women and children. And we know Jesus is hungry at this point. He's starving. He hasn't eaten in 40 days That's 120 missed meals. That's nearly 1,000 hours where Jesus has not tasted a crumb of food. That's 57,600 minutes that Jesus has not eaten anything. He's starving. But the problem is not found in the demand, but in the one who is making the demand you see Jesus knew exactly who he was speaking to we find ourselves this morning toward the end of the first round of the NBA playoffs and if you watch closely there's a big difference between the good teams that just make it there and the great teams that compete for a championship take for example the Golden State Warriors the defending champions like a good team they have a game plan They seek when they step out onto the basketball court, they want to execute and implement their game plan. Coach Steve Kerr, their coach, knows how to best use their star players. He knows how to use Draymond Green and Steph Curry and Kevin Durant and Klay Thompson all to best implement their game plan. But what makes the Warriors truly special is not just that they know their game plan, but it's that they seek to know the game plan of the other team. Before they've even stepped out onto the court, they've already been studying the other team to see what they do, to see how they work. So that as the Warriors and Coach Kerr step out onto the court, they know exactly who their opponent is and exactly what they're trying to do. Well, Jesus here in the battle knows exactly who his opponent is and exactly what he is trying to do. Make no mistake about it. The text is clear that this is the devil, the tempter, the accuser. Jesus later calls Judas Iscariot a devil, but never the devil, for there is only one who is referred to as the devil. Jesus knows exactly who this is. This is the one who deceived Adam and Eve in the garden. This is the one who sought to destroy Job This is the one who Jesus describes in John 10.10 as the thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And now we begin to see the problem with this proposition for Satan is attacking the identity of Jesus. Satan slithers up to Jesus and he says, if you are the son of God, then prove it to me. Prove it to yourself. Take these stones and turn them into loaves of bread. After all, Jesus, you're hungry. Why does it matter how you fulfill your hunger? No one is here and no one is watching. But Jesus sees right through the lies of Satan. He says, my identity is not found in the signs and wonders that I might do. My identity is found in the word of God. My identity is not found in my boasting. My identity is found in the bread of life. You see, Jesus knew he was the son of God because he had not forgotten the words of the father in Matthew 3, 17, that this is my beloved son. And now here we are nearly 2,000 years after the battle. And the reality is the enemy's battle plan has not changed. He will attack your identity. No, he won't say if you are the son of God, but he will say if you are a child of God. And when the enemy attacks your identity, God's word must be your first word. That's how Jesus responded. He responds with the words of Deuteronomy chapter 8, and he says, It is written. That's how we must respond. Because the enemy will say you are unworthy. But God's word says you are worthy because of the blood of Jesus. The enemy will say you are defined by your sin. God's word says you are defined by my love. The enemy will say you are what others say about you. God's word says you are what I have done for you. Don't listen to the world. Listen to God's word. You are a child of the king. This is where our identity is found. But the battle is not over. Satan has been defeated and so he decides I'm gonna change my tactics. I'm gonna change the location of this next temptation. And in verse 5 we read, Then the devil took him to the holy city, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord, your God, to the test. So Satan has taken Jesus up to the holy city, to Jerusalem. He's taken him to the pinnacle of the temple, most likely on the southeast corner of the temple. Jesus would have been standing about 300 feet above the Kidron Valley 30 stories above, 30 stories up. And as he's looking down, it would be clear that a fall from this height would be incredibly fatal. There was no surviving this fall without divine intervention. And so Satan comes and he tempts Jesus again. Yes, he's attacking his identity still, but now Satan has moved to attack the authority of Jesus. Satan says, why don't you throw yourself down and just command the angels to save you? Just think of everyone who's in the temple right now, outside of the temple, who would watch and see that you are truly the son of God. If you're the son of God, you should of course have power over the angels. Display it, show it. And this time, Satan decides, well, I'm gonna use the word of God as well. You see, we have an enemy who also knows the word. And Satan quotes from Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. But the problem is, Satan misquotes, misapplies, and twists Scripture out of context. You see, Satan leaves out the all-important words, to keep you in all of your ways. Always beware of someone who picks and chooses words from the Bible that they like. Always beware of someone who cuts the parts of the Bible out that they don't like. That's why we preach the whole counsel of God. That's why we interpret Scripture with Scripture. For you see, Psalm 91 was written about the protection of God for those who are in his way and in his will. Clearly, Satan's temptation is outside of the way and the will of God. And Satan sees through the lies of Satan again, and he grabs his sword, the word of God, and he deals a decisive blow to him. Again, he quotes from Deuteronomy, this time chapter 6, in verse 16, saying, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This is Jesus' authority. My authority is not found, Jesus says, by commanding angels. My authority is not even found in the amazement and the applause of people. No, my authority is found in the word of God. For it is inerrant, inspired. It is perfect and it is eternal. And just as the enemy attacks Jesus' authority, he will attack your authority authority. And when the enemy attacks your authority, God's word must be your first word. We must submit to the authority of Scripture. If we want to begin to experience the power of God working in us and through us, then we must submit to the authority of the word of God, because this is our authority. This is our power. And in order to unleash this power, we must know the Word of God. We must daily be in it. We need to protect our time alone with God. We need to protect our time alone with Him in prayer and the study of Scripture. We need to memorize it, meditate on it. Whether it's when we're in the car, whether it's when we're at a meal, whether it's when we wake up or go to sleep, we need to be in the Word of God. We need to teach it to our children. We need to love the word of God. We need to read it and just meditate on it. This is our authority. And this is our power. And so now we come to the third and the final attack. And Satan holds nothing back. He launches this final assault on Jesus. And he slithers up to him. And we read in verse eight again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all of these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And it's at this point that Satan reveals his true identity. He is the father of lies. And this is perhaps the biggest lie of them all. Imagine that you have a friend who asks you to house it for them. This friend has a beautiful, beautiful home. It's three stories, five bedrooms, four bathrooms. It's a nice house in a nice neighborhood, in a nice part of town. And one day you're sitting there watching the house, and you think to yourself, well, I could use a little money. So I'm going to sell the house. But what's the problem here? You don't own the house. You don't have the deed to the house. Therefore, you can do nothing with the house except for with the owner's explicit consent. Well, Satan may pretend like he owns all the kingdoms of the world and he may have some temporary authority, but he does not own the kingdoms of the world and he certainly does not have the consent of God the Father, the creator and ruler of all things. Satan's promise is empty and the enemy's promise to you is always empty. But there's still a temptation here. For did you notice that for the first time, Satan doesn't begin his attack with the words, if you are the son of God. No, because Satan has moved from attacking the identity of Jesus and the authority of Jesus to now Satan attacks the mission of Jesus In one sense, Satan almost affirms the fact that Jesus is truly the Son of God. And he says, because you are the Son of God, all these rightfully belong to you. But the enemy knew where Jesus was headed. He knew Jesus's mission involved going to a cross to die a death he didn't deserve. So Satan says, Jesus, why don't I just give you what you already deserve? Jesus, why don't you take a shortcut around the cross? And now we reach the climax of our text. What will the Son of God do? How will Jesus respond? Will he take the broad path, the easy way? That ultimately leads to destruction. Or will he go to the cross? Will he take the narrow road? Will he endure through it all to follow and obey the Father's mission? What will Jesus do? In verse 10, Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Victory had been won. And now we see the answer to our question. Jesus has provided us the ultimate example of endurance. If we are to endure in battle, God's word must be our first word. If we are to endure in battle, God's word must be our first word. You see, just as the enemy attacked Jesus's mission, he will also attack your mission. People all around the world, people that we interact with on a daily basis, are desperately searching for meaning and for purpose. What is the meaning of life? And in God's word, we find that we have been given the greatest mission. God has invited us to be a part of changing the world. Our mission is to go to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. That is our mission. We've been invited to be a part of changing the world. And people desperately need this this message in this mission, because people all around you are enchained to their sin, they're in bondage to addiction, and they desperately need to know about the victory of Jesus in the wilderness. But even more than that, they need to know the message of Matthew 27, and that is the victory of Jesus Christ on the cross, that Jesus came for them. That he so loved them that he gave his life. That he took their place on the cross. And not only that, they need to know the victory and the message of Jesus Christ in the empty tomb. That Jesus did not stay dead, but three days later he rose from the dead. That he defeated sin, that he defeated death. They need to know this message of victory. People are hopeless. They're desperately searching for meaning, and they need to know that Jesus Christ is coming again, an ultimate victory, to reign and to rule forevermore, to come back in glory. There are many movies that depict the American Revolutionary War. And in one particular movie, they depict a scene from the Battle of Yorktown the final battle of the war. And in this scene, the American colonial forces are clashing against the British Army. It's this great, colossal battle. And as the battle wages on, the American soldiers, the American troops begin to fall back the British size and the strength of their army begins to overwhelm them. They fall back, they run for the hills, but then all of a sudden, an American soldier picks up the newly formed U.S. flag and he charges back into enemy lines, shouting, no retreat, no retreat, hold the line men and women of Southwestern, we have a mission. Retreat is not an option. And I challenge you, I urge you to take God's word, your sword, and to charge back into enemy lines. Why would we retreat? Jesus Christ has already won the victory. We are on the winning side. And so what we must do now is we must endure in the battle by God's word being our first word. The grass will wither and the flower will fall, but the word of God endures forever. Amen.